Take your Bibles, turn to uh, Malachi 2. We are in uh, a study of the minor prophets this spring. We went through the book of Haggai. We are now in Malachi 2. A couple things as you're turning there. Um, I know for some of you that moment in worship this morning where you turn to someone you might not know all that well and you pray out loud, for some of you that's a stretch. It feels awkward, it feels uncomfortable. Um, I don't care. For your pastor, I was standing in the back hallway, and to hear God's people pray in this room is fantastic. Um, It's a good thing for us to lift up our voices together in prayer. Secondly, as you turn to Malachi 2, you need to know, like, like, why are we in Malachi 2? I would just say this is a chapter, Malachi 2, um, that no pastor has ever said, wow, I'm excited to preach Malachi 2. Um, This is a difficult passage. But here's the deal. We're committed to teaching the full counsel of God's word to our people. Sometimes that's going to lead us when we go through a book verse by verse to passages that I necessarily wouldn't pick to preach. And though this morning is difficult, I really do believe that if we'll focus uh, for just a few minutes on this passage, that God has some things to say, not just to a group of people that lived 2,000 years ago, but to us today. We're going to be talking about reputations this morning what it means to have a good name. Proverbs 22.1 says, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches and favor is better than silver or gold. It's funny how um, much time, much effort, how much effort and how much energy we sometimes spend worrying about what other people think of us. Worrying about our reputation, our image. Today with social media, you got that whole thing going. You can go home today and Hire uh, reputationdefender.com. They'll get the stories off of your uh, Google searches that you don't want there. People are very, very concerned about their image. I don't know if you guys have noticed this. There's been this little story in the news lately. It involves um, uh, Johnny Depp. Have you guys noticed that? And Amanda Heard. And uh, I don't care to know if you're on Team Johnny or Team Amanda. It just strikes me that that story is getting about as much coverage as the war in Ukraine. Have you noticed that? And, and I don't understand all the particulars, forgive me, but if I understand the, the basic premise, one of them said something bad about the other, so that person filed an anti-defamation lawsuit so they could slaughter each other on the stand for several months. Is that kind of how this is going? PR firms hired and fired and everybody trying to manage their image, celebrities trying to navigate their brand, how you appear on TikTok, on Facebook, all of these things become a huge concern. Malachi 2 is going to make a different argument. It's going to say that your reputation or a good name is not achieved by how you manage your image. It's not how you look or dress. It's not who you hang out with, who's in your crew, or what you even do or accomplish. The big idea this morning, if you're keeping notes, is this. There is a proven formula, a proven formula to a good reputation. It is not complicated. It is simple. It will be laid out in this passage in Malachi 2. But even as I say that, I think too often as Christians, we get caught up in externals. It's interesting, when we started our church, our church was only like three or four weeks old. We were meeting at the Trillium. We had just gotten started. We were 100 to 150 people. And all of a sudden, we had this group join our church. And if I remember correctly, it was 25 or 30 people came one Sunday to visit as a group. There was something going on in some other church. I don't even know what it is. But all of a sudden, there was this mass exodus, and they came to our church. 
And when they got to our church, um, they just dressed different. All the women were in length, full-length dresses. It didn't matter if you were an adult or you were a child. All the women were in full dresses. All the guys were in suits, not just suits, but ties. Didn't matter if you were 50. Didn't matter if you were a little guy, five. Everybody in suit and ties, everybody in dresses. And I remember they showed up one week and there were so many of them that all of a sudden Chris and Cal the next week were talking and I could see there was concern in my young guy's eyes with this new group that was coming. It's like, dude, they're going to kill the vibe. <laughs> like nobody else is going to attend our church if that's the, the, what people think of. And, and so here's the funny thing. They were doing the same thing with us. So about a month after they started attending, I went out to lunch with one of the guys and he said, you know, it's been really hard for me to adjust to some of the things at Harvest. And um, what's really hard is your worship leader, Chris, he wears jeans on stage. I, back then, I was still in my khaki and sweater stage. I wasn't wearing jeans yet, but Chris was in jeans and it's like, man, he's wearing jeans, but here's what I've done. I've been praying about it. God's been working on my heart and I've decided if jeans are the best clothes that he owns, I've got to be satisfied with that. (laughs) Then he made the offer. He goes, listen, what I'd like to do is buy him a suit. (laughs) And he wanted to give me money so that he could anonymously buy Chris a suit to wear and I kind of explained to him hey Chris already owns a suit blew his mind and trying to explain to them that when people come to church I understand about wanting to wear God's best I understand what you're doing but we're also trying to make people comfortable and it's not about the externals not just how we look it's even what we do some would define a Christian as someone who goes to church and reads their Bible and prays or is in a small group and listen all of those things are good things but at the end of the day at the core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus it's not a do thing it's not what you do it's not what you don't do it's not how you look it is a heart thing and that is really the theme of the book of Malachi what God is trying to express through his prophet. Back in Haggai, and it's interesting, Taylor said this last week, Haggai, he summarized the book by saying it's prioritizing the pursuit of the presence of God. Last week in starting Malachi and teaching through Malachi 1, Taylor had a point that said God wants nothing to do with heartless worship. And his big idea was the way that I worship reveals what I think about God. So a a theme in Malachi, don't lose this as we go through the text, God is after your heart. And that is the theme that is going to continue as we turn to chapter 2 of the book of Malachi. Pick it up in verse 1. It says this, And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them, because you did not lay it to heart. Just in those couple verses, let me just very, very quickly develop three things. First of all, this idea of priests. Malachi, the prophet of Malachi, God is through him addressing the leaders, the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel. They are returned from exile. They are back in the land. And he's going after the leaders. He's holding them accountable for the spiritual condition of the people for sure. But this isn't a passage that we can just look at and say it only applies to leaders so you guys can take the week off if you're not a small group leader, if you're not in a position of leadership. In referring to them as priests, if we go to the New Testament and we were to look at 1 Peter 2, speaking of the followers of of Christ in the New Testament, we read this in 1 Peter 2, 9. 
speaking of us, but we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What that just said is you're a follower of Jesus Christ today. You are a priest. You have access to a holy God. You don't have to go through an intermediary. You have that. So in the New Testament, we are considered priests. So the word that we have today about a good name and reputation, it's not just for leaders, it's for everyone. Secondly, in these two verses, you see this phrase, the Lord of hosts. It might surprise you that in the book of Malachi, that that description of who God is, Lord of hosts, it's used in 40% of the verses. In Haggai, was used in over 30% of the verses. Why does God present himself as the Lord of hosts to the nation when it's returned from exile? Because here's the condition of the nation. They're a little province. They don't have their own army. They can't protect themselves. They're completely at the mercy of the Persian Empire. And there's something about our God that he presents himself as the Lord of hosts when, he, when his people find themselves weak, at risk, and discouraged. In the Old Testament, the prophet Elisha, he is fleeing from the Syrian army. And he lands in this little town called Dothan. And he wakes up one morning and the Syrian army has surrounded the city. They're up on the mountains around the city. They've got Elisha and his prophet, or I mean, and his servant surrounded. And the servant is like, we're toast. I'm paraphrasing. We're toast. And and Elisha prays, he says, Lord, open the eyes of my servant that he may truly see. And when the servant looks back on the hills at at the Syrian army, what he sees is the Syrian army that surrounds them is actually surrounded by the army of the Lord of hosts. And sometimes we forget in moments when we're discouraged, when we feel weak, when we feel like we're being trampled, that our God is the God of hosts. Here's the main thing that I want you to see in these two verses. You're going to see it repeated two times in verse 2. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart, then at the end he says, indeed, I've already cursed them because they do not lay it to heart. The issue, the thing that Malachi is after, the thing that God is trying to get our attention, he's after our hearts. The Lord of hosts is after our hearts. Today, when you talk about heart, Um, It has more to do with feelings, more to do with emotions. Two high school kids are dating. Oh, she broke my heart. I feel bad. I feel sorrowful. Okay, we think of it more as feelings or emotions. In the Greek, it was the seat of the will. It was where your resolve was. It involves more than just emotions. It's what makes us do the things that we do. Parents, you get this. If you're a parent, if you've had kids, you want them to do the right things to make the right choices. Even more than that, at the core, you want them to love Jesus. You want them to develop character. You want them to make good choices based off their love for Jesus and their character. It's not just what they do, but why they do it. Now, honestly, by the time they get to high school, we'll just settle like, right? We're tired. And we'll just settle for them doing the right things. Like, I get that as a parent. But the truth is, we're looking to develop proven character. We want to get not just our kids' obedience. We want to get their heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 
And just to drive this point, 2 Corinthians 16, 9 says, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, get this, to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. A couple things that I like about that verse, God's looking to bless you, that's the heart of God. He's, he's searching, he's looking across the whole earth for those whose heart is towards him. Maybe you're here today and you're like, man, I could use some strong support. God is looking to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. Again, if you listen, if you will take it to heart, because you do not lay it to heart, understand that drifting away from God is drifting away from the blessings of God. There's a phrase in this verse that jumped out at me. It says this. It says in the middle of verse 2, then I will send the curse upon them and I will curse your blessings. What in the world does that mean? Like, how does God curse our blessings? That sounds scary. Let me explain. It's interesting. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon, Solomon, a man who was king, who was very rich, who was very industrious, he was known worldwide, he had fame, he writes these words in Ecclesiastes 6, verse 1. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lays heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them. In essence, what he's saying is, your blessings are cursed. God's given you the things that you thought that you desired but he hasn't given you the ability to enjoy them. He's cursing your blessings. If God is not your primary pursuit, as a fo- if you claim to be a follower of Jesus and God is not your primary pursuit, if he doesn't have your heart, if your primary passion is for other things, those things that you are pursuing that are the idols of your heart, they will ultimately let you down. They won't satisfy. Ask Solomon. Ask Johnny Depp. Let's keep going. Okay, verse 3 is an important verse in Malachi, uh, chapter 2. As a matter of fact, I would argue that verse Malachi 2.3 is a verse that I have referenced for sure top five in my lifetime. Oh yeah, there's John 3.16, there's Romans 3.23. There's a lot of verses that you might have memorized or referenced. Malachi 2.3 is high on my list. Let me explain. I have um, a brother-in-law, one of my best friends for the last 35 years. We are very competitive and we love sports. The problem with Scott is he was a high school quarterback, starting varsity quarterback. He was a two-time Illinois State wrestling champion. He went on and wrestled at Purdue, All-American there. So, so how do I compete at sports against a guy that's bigger, stronger, and faster than me? You play golf, right? So, so Scott and I golf together, kind of evens the playing field. And, and what's happened is over the years, over the last couple decades, this is just part of the rhythm of our friendship, he'll make a long putt. He'll win a hole. And Scott will get a big grin on his face and he'll sashay over to the hole to get his ball. And I'll just look at him. I'll be like, hey, M23, buddy. M23. Malachi 2.3. It's like pastoral cursing. Okay? <laughs> Read the verse. It's, it says, behold, I rebuke your offsprings and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. He knows exactly what I mean in that moment, okay? <laughs> You're going to want to commit it to memory. Just, just M23, that's all you need to know. Here, here's what I would say. 
we can laugh today, the priests weren't laughing. This was serious stuff. What God was saying to them, listen, if you're not going to give me your heart, if your service is just going to be going through the motions without your heart, I'm going to rebuke you. Those offerings that you give, I'm going to spread the dung on you and your offspring. You're going to be put away from the nation of Israel. You will no longer be able to enter my presence because you're unclean. To God, this was very serious. So here's the heart of what I want to get after today as we talk about a good name or a reputation. It picks up in verse 4. What determines my reputation? Look at verse 4. So uh, so shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. So Levi, all of the priests were from the tribe of Levi. So Levi is kind of the father of the priestly line. And what God is saying here is he's saying, listen, I made a command to Levi, a covenant with Levi. He says in verse 5, My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. Okay, so a couple things from this verse. Who gives life and peace? God does. He made a covenant. His heart towards Levi was to give him life and peace. I will argue and preach till the day that I die that God is not a taker. He's a giver. That God, when he puts rules around us, he's telling us, don't hurt yourself. Live in this manner. Follow this way of life. And it leads to joy. And it leads to happiness. In John 10.10, we read, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. Christ said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, that you may have life. In this case, the covenant that he made, his purpose was to bless Levi. That's why I made the covenant, to give you life, to give you peace. Okay. Here's the other side of the covenant. Pick it up at the end there of verse 5. It says this, my covenant with him was one of life and peace and I gave it to him. Here's the other side. It was a covenant of fear and he feared me and he stood in awe of my name. Okay, so this is where the message gets a little bit difficult. We've got to deal with this idea of fearing the Lord. Throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, I can take you to passages say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That word fear, it rubs people the wrong way, particularly in our culture. If somebody feels that they are feeling fear from an authority, they feel that they are repressed, that that's uh, not a right emotion. If there's a fear in the relationship, it must be a problem always with the authority. But over and over we see in Scripture, fear the Lord. So so let's break down that word fear. In the Hebrew, just so you understand what it means, I did a deep dive on the word fear because I wanted to avoid this moment right now. Fear means terror, to be afraid. Hey, good news. It's not the only word used to describe, or as a descriptor in this verse, it says, he feared me and he stood in awe of my name. I like that word awe better. Maybe it just means reverence or respect. Well, if you look at the Hebrew, that word awe means to be shattered, to be broken. I I, I can't duck it in the text. The word fear means to fear. Modern psychology would tell you that kids should have no fear, that your home should be a place where a kid can live and can thrive without fear. I look back at my childhood, there was fear in my home. My dad wasn't abusive, he wasn't a real strong disciplinarian, but here's what I know. 
If I was getting a failing grade, there was some fear there. If I was sneaking out at night, if I was doing stuff I wasn't supposed to do, there was a fear there of my parents. Honestly, the fear was more of disappointment. I didn't want to put a barrier. I didn't want to lose their trust. I didn't want to break the barrier of the relationship. And sometimes there is a healthy fear. Just please understand, if I, if I leave this service and I'm driving to Grand Haven and I'm speeding and there's a policeman parked there, the fact that in that moment I feel fear isn't his fault. I'm doing something wrong. Fear of the Lord, understanding his place, understanding that he is the Lord of hosts. That's not an unhealthy thing. That's a healthy thing. And as we begin to look at our reputation, the first thing that is pointed to in these verses is this. Do you fear the Lord? Here's the second thing. Verse 6. True instruction was found in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. What determines my reputations? Fear of the Lord. Here's a second one, loving truth. Loving truth. If you fear the Lord, you're going to speak the truth. If you fear the Lord, you're going to love his word. Our culture today is trying to connect with God in so many ways. And just to be, as I understand it in scripture, you can connect with God through nature. Uh, Romans 1 says that through creation, everything that we need to know about God is clearly evident. It's obvious that there's a God. It's obvious that there's a creator through the things that can be observed. So, so if you want to argue that you go for a walk on Sunday mornings and you're just walking through the park with your labradoodle and you've never felt closer to God and, than in that moment, I get it. But here's the truth. Fear of the Lord means we want to understand not just that there is a God, but who is he? What is he like? What type of relationship? How does he want us to live? And those things are found in his word. A good reputation begins with fearing the Lord. The next one is loving truth. That also means loving his word, which means that you have to spend time in it. You, you have to know it. Because if you don't know God's word, you're never going to get to the place where all of this leads, which is a good name. Look at the end of verse 6. When we fear the Lord, when we love truth, the result is a good name. It says this, it says of Levi, he walked with me in peace and righteousness and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So a couple things. Fear of the Lord leads to a love for God's truth, which leads to a good reputation or a good name. There is a progression. This is the way that it works. Put up that next slide. When we fear the Lord, we're going to naturally love truth. We're going to want to know who he is, and he reveals himself through his word. And when we love his word, that leads to a good name. Okay? You don't get a good name by hiring a PR firm. You don't get a good name by wondering how people perceive you. You don't get a good name by outward activities trying to build a reputation. The way you develop a good name is through fearing the Lord, loving truth, and the byproduct of those things is a good name. If you start focused on a good name, your reputation, your legacy, it becomes an idol. When you start with fearing the Lord and loving truth... The byproduct is a good reputation. 
says in verse 8, they didn't follow this path. He says in verse 8, but you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I, and so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. So, so here's what he's saying. Priests, and in our context, followers of Jesus, New Testament, the church, priests. If you don't get this, if you don't fear the Lord, if you don't love truth, God will tear down your reputation to get your attention. God's in control of your reputation. And he says, you've got to make the primary thing, fearing the Lord. I've got to be on the top of this pedestal of your passions, your desires. I want your heart. And if you miss that, well, here's the second thing in the notes. The alternative is faithlessness. Look at verse 10. Have we not all one father? Have we not, has not one... Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Verse 11, Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendants of the man who does this, who brings an offering before the Lord of hosts. So in the rest of this chapter, we're just going to go the next seven verses, 10 through 16, but in seven verses, five times, you're going to see that word faithless. He's going to talk about our interpersonal relationships. He's going to talk about our families, but it's all under the umbrella theme of faithless. He goes, you either choose to fear the Lord and to love truth, or you find yourself suffering from the consequences of faithfulness. If I could say this in a way that we might understand here, if your vertical relationship with the Lord is not primary, don't think you're going to hold together your horizontal reputation or relationships. Here's what I see. The first thing in the text, it's to each other. It says in verse 10, why then are we faithless to one another? They ask the question, how has Judah been faithless? Because he's married the daughter of a foreign god. The issue isn't interracial marriage. It's interfaith marriage. And God has warned the nation, don't marry foreign women who serve foreign gods. It'll lead your heart astray from me. The issue isn't interracial, it's interfaith. If I can put that really simply, if you're at that stage of life where you're dating, evangelistic dating's a really bad plan. We're called not to be unequally yoked. And he says what happens is when we get our priorities backwards, we begin to hurt one another. Judah returned his exiles to the land, though still surrounded by the Persian army. They found themselves in a situation where they were surrounded by enemies. And I'll be honest, in our current cultural context, you can look around at where our culture is heading, we did a whole series on this last fall. There are times that as a follower of Jesus Christ, I feel like we're surrounded by wolves. And yet, the sheep continue to bite each other. Here's a second thing that begins to, it's not just to others, it's to ourselves. Look at verse 13. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because you no longer, he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hands. 
This is really sad. They're going through the motions. They're making the offerings. They're crying at the altar. And God never blesses. It's not that they don't love the Lord. It's just that they love other things more. It's not that they don't fear the Lord of hosts. They just don't fear him enough. Don't make a cartoon out of these priests. They're just not bad guys. They're guys that are actually, in some cases, going through the motions trying to follow God, trying to serve, but they're focused on externals, they're focused on reputation, they're focused on the process. God doesn't have their hearts, and he says, listen, it's sad. The faithfulness is not just to each other, it's to yourself. Living the Christian life and never experiencing the blessing that you receive when God has your heart, man, that's tragic. And then we see a third thing in the text, verse 14 question is, why doesn't he bless? Why do we never find favor from God's hand? Verse 13, that says in verse 14, but you say, why does he not? Because the Lord is witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. There's that word again. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Okay, the, the textual issue is this. Why isn't God blessing us? And the answer is direct because you're mistreating your wife. That's the answer. You're mistreating your wife. Men, in this room, do you think you're the exception to the rule? Do you really believe that God's going to bless you, bless your career, bless your family, bless your reputation while you entertain inappropriate relationships, while you mistreat your wife, while you look at pornography? You think God doesn't see? You think you're the exception to the rule? And the warning here is, hey, why is God withholding his blessing? Because you mistreat your wife. You're not leading your families. Now, I don't have a lot of time to develop this, but let me just remind you of some very basic principles or theology as it relates to marriage. In Genesis 1, verse 27, it says, God made them male and female. Simply stated, God sets gender. Secondly, God designed marriage. He was the one that says it's not good for man to be alone. He created a helper suitable. He is the designer, the creator of marriage. And then thirdly, it says in Genesis 1:28, be fruitful and multiply. That sex is to be enjoyed within the context of the marriage relationship. We're going to see some more theology as it relates to marriage in the next couple verses in Malachi. It says in verse 15, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? Here's what that just said. Marriage is sacred. It's not just between a husband and a wife. There's actually a third party to that marriage. It's the spirit of God wants to be part of your marital relationship. Goes on and says, and what was the, and what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. It's not just kids. Not just be fruitful and multiply. Godly offspring. The family unit is the foundational piece of our culture and of our society. Throughout the Old Testament, parents raising kids, reminding them, bringing them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Hey, talk about the Lord with your kids. When you rise up, when you lay down, when you're sitting around the table, wherever you are, make the Lord a priority in your home. That's a foundational principle of society. Genesis 1, creation. Genesis 2, the establishment of marriage and family. That's how God designed it to work. Should it come as any surprise to us that it grieves the Lord what's going on as it relates to marriage in our culture today? 
and it should grieve us as well. Here's a third thing. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless, that word again, to the wife of your youth. We need to guard our marriages. Men, your marriage, your relationship with your wife, your, your role as husband and father, it's the most important job that you have. And if you fail there, you don't succeed anywhere. A good reputation and a good name is dependent on fearing the Lord, loving his word, taking seriously the responsibilities that he's given to us. Verse 16, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. Here's the way that I can sum this up. Fear the Lord, love his word. The byproduct of those two things is a good name. Refuse to fear the Lord. Refuse to love his word. The byproduct of that is chaos, broken relationship, and violence. The Lord's not going to bless it. It's not complicated. It's just a choice, not an easy choice. You're saying, I'm not going to be the star of my own show. I'm going to make Jesus. I'm going to make the King of hosts, the Lord of hosts, my primary pursuit. He'll have my heart. Three suggestions as we close. Here's number one. Be willing to say the unpopular thing. It's interesting in verse six, it says that the Levi, he turned many from iniquity. I can't believe that was well received all the time. Can you? Saying the difficult thing, saying the thing that needs to be said, making a stand for truth. Why would you do that? Because you fear the Lord more than you fear other people. You've made that commitment. It's interesting. In John 6, 67, Jesus had said some difficult things. Most of his followers, it says many of those in the multitude had now left him. So the peer pressure was to abandon Jesus. And it says that Jesus turned to the 12 and said, do you want to go away as well? And Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Do you believe that? Be willing to say the unpopular thing. Here's another thing. Let the Lord defend your reputation. Reputationdefender.com. Okay. I'll trust my reputation to the Lord of hosts. How about you? First Peter 2 says that when, speaking of Christ, when he was reviled, that means when he was villainized, when he was made to be the villain, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered... He didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. When we're mistreated, when we're betrayed, when we are made out to be the villain, we're told to look to Jesus. What did he do? Well, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. He entrusted himself to the Lord of hosts. I trust God to defend my reputation. And then here's a third. Care less about yourself care less about yourself. John the Baptist in John 3.30, he has this wonderful verse. It's very simple. He must increase, but I must decrease. At the end of the day, your reputation isn't the most important thing. Your legacy isn't the most important thing. 
The name of Jesus Christ is the most important thing. His is the name that is lifted high. His is the name that we cherish. His is the name that we defend. We defend the name of Jesus Christ. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's the thing. That's the main thing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, Malachi 2 and a difficult passage that we don't often visit, but a reminder. Father, we thank you that you are the Lord of hosts. Father, as we live in difficult days in in, in a culture that more and more rejects who you are, as we sometimes feel isolated, Father, teach us that it's your approval that we need to long for. Father, let our good name be summarized by this statement, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let that be the thing that we look for. Let that be our focus. Let your name be lifted high. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.